I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Today on episode 79, I'm talking to Chip and Ruby Mitchell, who lead the church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Leading a large, multiracial church during racial unrest, political tension, and a worldwide pandemic, they share what has helped them grow, how they ended up in Philadelphia, how to live a godly life during racial and political tension, how to have a exit strategy, how they blow off steam, and three secrets that'll help you be a better preacher. All this and more on this episode of the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, to make this life count, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Today on this episode, I'm looking forward to talking to Chip and Ruby Mitchell. And also, I've got a special guest, co-host, and that's my wife, Pam Skinner. Pam, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, honey. It's great to be here. <laughs> Pam, Pam knows Chip and Ruby from the past, and I was really happy to have her on it. It's been a crazy day. I went for a prayer walk today, and I was just jogging, kind of spacing out, tripped on an upturned piece of pavement, and just totally took a tumble, scraped up my hand, looked around, hoped that no one was watching me. I didn't spot anybody, but it was majorly embarrassing. So (laughs) here I am, glad to be on the program. Chip and Ruby, great to have you here today. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for inviting us. Uh, It is an honor. It really is. It's so great to see you, Pam, because we know your mom and your dad are uh, the Pelagians, and so it's so great to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you guys, too. Yeah. So, Chip and Ruby, how'd you guys become Christians? Ah, that journey of faith, right? <laughs> I um, I uh, went to college in the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and in my sophomore year, I was met and reached out to and uh, uh, looked at the Bible on a Thursday and a Friday and got baptized on Sunday. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it, was, what? it was a whirlwind of <laughs> conviction, <laughs> tears, and fear, and what in the world? I had no idea. And uh, I was a sophomore in college playing football there. And uh, it's been. Uh, that was 1986. So I'm working on 35 years and it's just been incredible in every way. Wow. I was also baptized in 1986. So we are spiritual brothers, Chip. That's awesome. <laughs> there you go. Now, there Chip, you go. I notice on your screen, it says Clifton Mitchell. Ah, that's my government name, right? <laughs> okay. How'd you get the name Chip? Well, that's a good question because I've asked my parents, no one knows, Uh, (laughs) you know, my grandfather was Clifton and he never went by the name. My father was Clifton. He never went by the name. I'm Clifton. I never went by the name. And my son is Clifton and he doesn't go by the name. So, (laughs) you know, you got four, (laughs) fourth generation 
We all have it, but no one uses it. Oh, gosh. Oh, that's that's hilarious. Interesting to know that. Thank you. Yeah. Ruby, how about you? So I became a Christian in 1986 as well. And But my journey was I was living in New York as a single woman working for a publishing firm and uh, living with friends of mine that I went to scholar to college with and their family. And I was met on the way home by Leslie Hopkins. Now she's in Brazil with her husband, I see this. And so she reached out to me and uh, I ended up going to Mike, oh, sorry, Amber Jeet's women's Bible study. And Amber Jeet and Leslie studied the Bible with me with some of the other women. It took me about three months or so and got baptized. And, you know, that's kind of how it all went. So that was in the New York church? That was in the New York church. I'm sorry, I wow. should have mentioned that. Yeah. Okay, terrific. Now, I've heard that you two, have a, you two have a unique story on how you got married. Can you tell us how that happened? How did you guys get together? Wow. Well, there's the evangelist story <laughs> and the, the wife story. <laughs> we need both. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, uh, it was an interesting journey, you know, uh, in the summers, because I'm from Philadelphia area, I um, would come home for the holidays and uh, sometimes for the summer, and the Philadelphia church was planted in 1989. And Ruby was on the original mission team from New York City to Philadelphia. And so I would come down to Philly, myself, Dave Mitchell, and and we would hang out with the church here in Philly. It was very small at the time. And I had a crush on Ruby. And, you know, but unfortunately, Ruby had a crush on Dave Mitchell and not me. <laughs> You're going to put that out there? <laughs> and, then I had, and then I moved my crush to Ruby's roommate and, you know, never <laughs> dated, neither one. And, uh, you know, nothing really came about it. Obviously, uh, Ruby's six years older than me, so she was in a different place in life, and I was still in college, and, you know, we went back to college, and I wound up dating and actually getting married in the church, um, and uh, that didn't go well at all. It was uh, pretty devastating, and we uh, wound up going through a, a very difficult divorce. Well, at the same time, Ruby was engaged to a gentleman in the church, and she was going through a horrific breakup. And why don't you, you want to, you want to take sure. up and finish up from there, babe? It's interesting because the couple that was in my life in Philadelphia and Chip's discipling partners switched places. And while switching places, I got a chance to talk to uh, the wife of, of the couple. And <laughs> she asked me, um, is, oh, I remember you really well because Chip talked about uh, meeting a girl and kind of getting, you know, she cried over her lunch when you, she, he took her out to, to, on a date. And that was me. And since then, he had, he had gotten married, but she's, he asked me if I should give you a call. And I thought, no, she's over it. No, don't worry about it. And on my end, the same thing. I had asked the question, you think I should call him back? I just felt horrible. And it's like, no, don't worry about it. So we never even connected. Wow. But I went on to get engaged to a guy that was living in New Jersey. And so 
uh, about the time that he was going through his separation, I was going through my breakup of my engagement to this guy. But we were connected through a, uh, one of the leaders there that says, why don't you give, she said to me, why don't you give Chip Mitchell a call? And I actually knew Chip. We kind of knew of each other, but we never, you know, hung out or did anything more than that one day. And so we did. And we started this long distance uh, friendship. And um... misery really loves company. <laughs> we were sharing our really, really sad, tragic stories yes, that no we... one else wanted to hear. <laughs> we became great friends, long distance. And, uh, you know, God would work all of that out in the end. So. And, and then I finally asked her out on a date. And I came down to Philadelphia and back then, you know, back then it sounds so long ago. Uh, it's, it'll be 25 years in March for us. Wow. And Congratulations. I had a day runner for those of you who remember day runners. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, you had your little day runner because, you know, you're, you're all about accomplishing things. And uh, I was working in, in the secular realm at that time, I believe. I'm pretty sure. Maybe not. Who knows? Uh, and no, I wasn't, I was actually an intern at that time. And, you know, I'm driving her to her staff meeting because we had a date, had a great time and I'm going to drop her off at her staff meeting. And, um, she had grabbed my day runner, you know, which is like taking someone's phone and looking through their phone, you know, right. Right. <laughs> and she wrote something in my day runner and she closed it. And then I dropped her off, said goodbye. I drive down the street, get around the corner. I open my day runner and there it is on this page. She wrote, I thank God for saving you for me. Oh, oh wow. That was an aggressive move on the first date, I would say. <laughs> wow. Okay, did I say it was a cougar? I, I'm not. <laughs> I when I that. told Jeannie Frederick that I had done that, she was like, what in the world? But he was excited about it, and we began to pursue each other more, and eventually I moved to um, Massachusetts to be with him in oh, the ministry. That's awesome. I left Philadelphia, which I was on the original mission team. I moved to New Jersey for this relationship, we got engaged, broke off, eventually moved back to Philadelphia, went into the ministry, and then moved to Boston to be with Chip. Wow, that's awesome. Now, Chip, that, yeah. must, that must have been challenging for you because back, back in the day, there was a lot of pride in the kingdom, like, hey, we don't have divorces here. That's just not done. It's, you know, we're, we're like perfect marriages. How did you navigate that? I mean, how did you recover from that? Because that must have been a real tough thing. Um, not not just getting divorced, but getting divorced in the church. You know, when I went through my divorce, you know, obviously, like you said, you know, there were many sermons. We've not had a divorce in our fellowship, da da da. And then I, I think I was the second one, because then we would say we've not had a divorce where two disciples have remained faithful to God. And every time they said it, it was like a dagger in my heart, twisting. I'm just like, yeah, I'm the, I'm the issue. Yeah, right here. I am the reason we can no longer boast that, that boastful claim of immaturity. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it was a very difficult time. I, um, you know, I think there were some 
dispositions I had that helped me through that, some good and some bad. I didn't know they were bad, but they did get me through. Um, one of it was, you know, I had a pretty determined spirit. Like there was perseverance, hard work, dedication from a whole sports background. My father, his role model, you know, he was like, hey, no matter how bad things get, you you work hard, you, you, you stick it out, you continue, you never quit. So I had that, but I also had a, an unhealthy disposition uh, about God. I, the marriage was so bad and I was so uh, abusively treated that later on I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress from it. But during that time, in my mind, it was, hey, this is God's discipline of you for your past life. And you need to gird up and endure God's discipline because God is disciplining you so you can make it to heaven. And so with that wrong disposition uh, accompanied with this determined spirit, you know, I persevered through it. Um, and, you know, it was extremely painful. I remember one day I, I wrote in a journal and I just said, God, there's, um, there's only two things I can do. I, I can pray and read my Bible every day. And I, and I can talk to at least one person about you. That's it. That's all I got left. Wow. <laughs> and I said, I tell you what, I'll do that. <laughs> if someday you can put me in the ministry in the month of June. Wow. I don't know why I said June. I have no idea why I said June. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to say anything about this prayer because I want to know if you're listening to me. Right. And sure enough, one Wednesday night, I was sick in the month of June. No, it wasn't June. I was sick. I missed midweek the first time in forever. You know, back then you never miss midweek, right. <laughs> nor be late to right. church. Right. And, uh, I get this phone call. It's a gentleman by the name of Kevin McDaniel, one of my heroes in the faith. And uh, he said, hey, how you doing? I said, oh, I'm sick. I'm just sorry I missed it midweek. And he said, oh, I just want to make sure you're okay. And and I said, uh, yeah, I'm fine. And he said, well, listen, we announced to the church that we're putting you in the ministry. And I was like, what? Like, I had no idea. Like, this was... <laughs> This is a whole different era in our church, people. <laughs> Very different era. And I was like, you did what? Like, and I'm working for this Fortune 500 company, making a lot of money. He said, oh, yeah, I told him you're going to quit your job and go into ministry, which was true because he knew me. I'd do that in a heartbeat. And and I was like, you told the church? Yeah. So the church knew before I knew. And I said, well, wait, wait. All I want to know is when. When are you going to put me in the ministry? Because I wanted to know if God was listening. He said, we're thinking June. And I was like, oh, here's me. Wow. And, uh, you know, so that was that. I mean, obviously, there's so much more in the midst of the struggle with it. But, um, yeah, yeah, it was tough. And, you know, it was great to have Ruby because we were commiserating right. about, right. you know, our life. Right. <laughs> and, no one yeah. else wanted to hear our story or our saga, but we wanted to hear it. Yeah. Well, thank and you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Very similar. I was praying. I was living in New Jersey and hadn't moved back here, but I was praying that God could show me he could still use me after so many years. The relationship didn't work. I was feeling like 
you know, everybody else is getting married. God, do you even like me? That was my question to him. And I would pray this prayer, God, please show me that you can still use me. And I got a call from Kim Reed, who she and her husband, Chris, led the uh, church here. And she asked me if I would come back to Philadelphia and lead full-time in the ministry as an intern in the inner north zone and i was like oh my goodness and i knew i hadn't spoken to anybody about it so again the affirmation that got off that god answered that prayer and then i moved back to philly for the second time to um go into the ministry wow wow yeah so you guys both had jobs all right why why did you guys choose full-time ministry i mean you've got this high power job you've got a lot going on you're making lots of money and this is a, a big issue in many people's lives right. these days. They're like, I don't want to do ministry. I, I'm making bank. And, <laughs> you know, it, you don't see the kind of numbers or the desire. What was driving you guys? Good question. For me, it was the women that were around me. I think early on, we really had the spirit of training and giving people a vision for what God could do for them. So that's not how I came into the church, but that's exactly how I was. It, my heart was cultivated in that way. I was always a servant, always loved, you know, people and pretty personable, but to be around the kind of women, the kind of uh, relationships that I, you know, acquired in the church, it just led to that desire because I saw them and I was inspired by their lives. And, and uh, so I think it's other women having a vision for me, Pat Gimple was one of those women that uh, sat down with me a few times and uh, I asked her, do you think I should could go into the ministry? And she thought I could. And then she asked me my age and I had this guy that was pursuing me. And she said, you might want to consider that part of your life first. And so I moved and I pursued it. And then that God said no to that. And then I came back to be in the ministry. And I was much older than the other interns. I was coming in, you know, at 34. <laughs> so, and honestly, they were hiring more younger women at that time. But it, it, I think the thing that stood out to me is that the women around me had such a vision and had such a zeal and a love for God and his word. And I felt like I want to do this. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, I, all I wanted to do was go to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was the only thing I cared about. The church that I was uh, a part of it's like 41 people. They look like uh, the, the the folks that were rejected from the Brady's family. <laughs> Brady Bunch. The Brady Bunch. We had nothing in common. No, nothing. There wasn't anything that I remotely identified with. But these people loved me to death. They were family. They legitimately became my family. And... So I wasn't looking around saying, hey, here's where I want to be and be the minister here. Like that was, I felt like I was in a foreign land in Amherst, Massachusetts. Like right. it was so different than Philadelphia. And, but I remember people saying to me, different people, hey, you, you have a gift, you know, and um, you should think about the ministry. And I, and at that time I was like, no, I, I don't want a life of poverty. Why would I? <laughs> do that like that that is not what i'm looking for uh i love the church and i'm not going anywhere and i'm gonna die here but being a minister no and but inside i felt god's calling like it was um 
it was clear that God was saying, hey, man, I've got a different path than the one you see. And I remember going to the World Mission Seminar in uh, Toronto, and I, it was just amazing. I mean, it was crazy. You know, Henry Crete was up there dancing in some Indian outfit, you know, and people, and, you know, I was Tony Singh or Ganeshwar at that time was up there dancing. I was like, well, these people are crazy. And, and I thought, but this is it. And I thought, you know what? We, you know, we hadn't had churches all around the world at that time. And I'm thinking, we got to get this done. And I was driving home with my roommate. I had a Corvette at that time. Nice. And I said, uh, yeah, in college with a Corvette, who knew? And uh, I remember driving home in that Corvette and I remember hitting the steering wheel. I said, you know what? I got to get rid of this Corvette. I can't bring people to church in a two seater. And I said, this is it. I'm all in. And I went home that weekend, traded in my Corvette, bought a Chevy Blazer so I could bring people to church. And, and it was at that moment I said, I want to go in the ministry. This is it. And, uh, you know, graduated college, did not get, very unfortunate situation in conversation, did not get a chance to go into ministry, went out and worked for four and a half years, but I still had that passion uh, to go into ministry, and I was dreaming and praying. I was even, I was about to buy a uh, beauty salon. Yes, I need beauty help, <laughs> uh, but I had a woman that was very good and had an enormous clientele, and I was going to fund her and get a business. And I figured, listen, and I told her, I said, look, I know you, you make thousands cutting hair. I said, all I need is 600 bucks a week, $30,000 a year, and you can keep everything else. I just want to be able to work full time in the ministry. And uh, literally the deal fell through the day I was taking the check over to buy it. And uh, but I'm glad because I got into the ministry. So wow. it was, uh, it was amazing in every way. Okay, so now, Chip, you have to share with us, what is your superpower? <laughs> superpower. I, yeah, superpower. You mean the one I want? I want to be like Flash, you know? <laughs> you know, I want to be, or like Iron Man. That's a cool guy. Uh, but I think my, my superpower is probably forgiveness. Like, you know, um, I think I, I really don't hold grudges. I just, you know, I can't get upset and mad, uh, but I, I keel over and forgive, mm -hmm. you know, awesome. I just really, wow. I hang in there, you know, and I'm like, okay, all right, let's, let's do this again, you know, right. so I don't know if it's a superpower or idiocy <laughs> sometimes, but that's that, a good one, honey. No, that is a superpower. <laughs> probably <laughs> Probably I'm at I the live. other end of that a few times, so I'm really grateful for that power you got there. <laughs> no, she's easy to live with. Yeah. How about you, Ruby? What's your superpower? Well, I think I'd say laughter. I love to laugh, and I think of Proverbs, she can laugh at the days to come, but I enjoy um, the spirit of, of laughter and joy. And I, if I'm in your a relationship with you, that's what I want to do. We will find ways to either poke fun at myself or some situation, but I love to laugh. So I would say that's a superpower. That's great. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, laugh. let yeah. me ask you is what, what three things helped you when you were younger spiritually to grow and to take on more responsibility? Mm. You want me to go first, hon? 
Uh, number one, reading my Bible. Um, I, I still remember when I got my first Bible, I held it in my hand and I was like, I'm going to learn this thing like nobody else. Um, and so I dedicated myself to really reading and understanding why I was doing what I was doing and, you know, really understanding God's word grounded me and uh, it helped me to deal with a lot that was going on around me because there were a lot of different things. You know, there was a lot of social issues in the 80s. Uh, in the black community with Minister Farrakhan and th and that was very prevalent at the University of Massachusetts. And it and the Bible grounded me in dealing with with that. The second thing was the uh, relationships, you know, having peer relationships. Uh, you know, on the football team, there were three of us that became Christians and we were known as the God squad to this day, <laughs> my college coach, he's talking 30 some years ago. He still says, look at you, you man of God. Literally. He sent me a message yesterday or today, you know, he literally. And he said, my last memory of you is when you prayed for us and we went out and won. And I'm just like, it's 30, it's almost 40 years ago. <laughs> and, uh, but it was those relationships, the peer relationships that, you know, you, you connect with. And, and honestly, the guys I hung out with were not guys that I would hang out with, but they became best friends. And then the third thing is having uh, many father and mom figures. Uh, Mike and Janet Hammonds, they uh, led the church there in Northampton. And they were parents. They were you know, Andy and Amanda Boudry, uh, the, uh, the Camerons, so many families. I mean, I was, what, 20 years old. And then I had these families that took me in. I didn't like the food they cooked. I didn't like where they lived. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't like any of that. But they just embraced me. They loved me. They cared for me. They, you know, I could call any of them right now. And I guarantee you will laugh and cry. And I haven't talked to them in years, but it's just what they were to me. It, it helped me. They guided me. They, um, they adopted me in. Wow. That's great. Now that's for me. I, you know, everybody else is different. That's right. what, where I was, the state of mind that I had, that's what I needed. That's awesome. And those were the three pieces that helped me. Mm -hmm. How about you, Ruby? Yeah. Can you pose the question again? Yeah. What, what three things helped you when you were younger spiritually to grow and to take on more responsibility? Yeah. I think I'd start with the relationships as well. I mean, coming into the church, I was 25 when I studied the Bible. I was working for a publishing firm and living in New York City, knew no one. And so when I was met on the train coming home and got involved with this incredible family, this church of people that were so connected from every ethnicity, age, and stage, those became my relationships. Whereas before, my relationships would be generally around the same age, stage, life, we're doing the same things. And so just broadening my, you know, just even the, the age and the cultural differences, which I didn't have coming up, um, really, I think, made a huge difference. Um, so I always loved 
I think Chip said the whole family aspect. I think the church was really great at that. Um, you felt like you're at home and you had many different mother, brothers, fathers, sisters, which the Bible talks about when you, you know, deny yourself and you let go of these things, he'll give you so many more, so much more in the family of God. But then also, um, I think about when I was asked to go on a mission team from, from New York to Philadelphia uh, and getting here and being one of a few to help evangelize a city, that again, I think <laughs> those kinds of situations where you put yourself in, where your faith had to be solid and you had to reach out, you know? And so I learned early on, dig deep with God and then reach out. And uh, as scary as times got at times from the different transitions of leadership to the different people that came and went, hardships that I had, whatever, um, God saw me through all of that. And I really think it was the family. It was the family atmosphere. It was the scriptures. We did a lot of memorizing of scriptures. We did a lot of studying the Bible with people. And uh, all those things helped to nurture my faith. And I think those, those are the things. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Now, how did, you, how did you guys end up in Philadelphia? You guys were in Boston. I, I remember seeing you guys in Boston. But Chip, now you're back in your hometown, which must be awesome for you. And then can you tell me about the church? What, what are the demographics? What's the church look like? Yeah, so obviously Ruby coming back, this is third time's a charm, right? I was just gonna say I moved here three times. <laughs> so which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We um obviously we've been in Boston pretty much our whole life and uh you know, Christian life. My kids grew up pretty much there. And uh, the thought of coming back to Philadelphia had never crossed my mind really. Um I was in New England. That's it. This is home. And, you know, I love Philly. I love, you know, uh, my family there. But at this point, it was, you know, mute because I, I was there. I had actually thought about my cemetery, picked out the cemetery where I wanted to be buried in New England. I was Says like, that, and that just makes me like, what? That's where I want to be buried. You're a definite long-term planner, I can tell. Yeah, I was like, that's it, right there. That's it. We're here. <laughs> and, uh, We're home. <laughs> And, uh, you know, so, and then all of a sudden, you know, for about two, three years, Philly had asked us to come to their big Sunday service. They always had an outdoor, you know, they had a service and then an outdoor picnic or tailgate party. And we would be invited for like three years running. And I didn't realize they were courting us. <laughs> and, okay. And uh, they were looking for a couple to come and lead the church. And we weren't thinking about it. It was just great to come home, see family for a little bit. My family would come out one Sunday. It was like 27 family and friends that came out to church with us. <laughs> and, we were there. You yeah. know, it was awesome. And, and then they had approached Boston and said, we really would like for them to come and lead. And we were like, what? <laughs> Philly? Like, what? when you grow up in Philly, you know, there's a mentality, you got to get out. You know, if you grew up in the city and it's tough, the, the thinking is he made it out. And I remember calling some of my family and one of my cousins was like, you're going to move back to Philly? Like, it's like, we, we all got out. You know, the goal is to get out. Of, and, and you're That's coming hilarious. back, you know. You're, uh, 
I, I didn't, I mean, it just wasn't, it's so, I wasn't thinking about it, but when I came, got around the church, it was so clear mm-hmm. that we needed to come back here. And I woke up, I still wake up five years, it's almost six years later, so thankful to be here. Mm-hmm. I, I just, mm-hmm. I mean, the idea of leaving here cr- would crush me more than anything else, because, uh, but, you know, you say that, and guess what? You're yeah. on the plane to <laughs> Jakarta. Right. <laughs> Which is true. It's so funny. We never really dreamt, you know, when you think of moving someplace, you think someone someplace new, right? You don't think going back somewhere. And so when we were asked, we both looked at each other and we thought, I thought for sure my reaction would be no, no, and no. And we both looked at each other and we're like, really? And we went away and we prayed about it. And we both, our hearts were both like, you know what? that it's something we never would have put on the table but we might need to pray about this and it wasn't as offensive to us as we thought it would be Mm. um and it was doug who was presenting it (laughs) so uh he said you know they've come to us and we didn't i didn't want to come to you and and ask tell you guys that they've been asking for you but he says in all honesty i have to have put it on the table and let you guys make a decision and we said, yeah, I think this is the uh, this is the right time. My son was uh, see, had just graduated high school, so he was a new start was fine. My daughter, she had a little bit of a hiccup getting here, getting acclimated. But uh, right now, we all feel like this is exactly where God wanted us to be. That's awesome. And it's coming home. I came back to a church that I knew a lot of the people because I was, you know, on one of the original uh, on the original team here. But and Chip was coming home to family, so we right. both were coming home, and it's been great for both of us and our family. That's great. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that they were, that was really key, and I spent some time talking to Wyndham Shaw about it, is they felt like they needed an African American couple because Philadelphia has a rich tradition of uh, prejudice, racism, and social challenges, and. You know, I grew up in the midst of it. One of the most controversial figures here was Frank Rizzo. Well, I was a kid growing up under Frank Rizzo as the mayor. And then Wilson Good, who had the uh, Osage Avenue move situation where they basically burned down a whole block. Well, I was here in Philly when all that took place. Like I was a kid, you know, growing up. And, and that was, a, you know, some challenges. And Philly faced many, many challenges racially divided and the leadership here the Evans in particular were like we have to find an African-American couple and the idea that I was from Philly really resonated right Um, but I didn't know all that and having a conversation with Wyndham many people have come and asked about Chip and Ruby coming here coming there and Wyndham has always said no Chip no please don't go no 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 this was the first time he said to me he goes I'm finding it very hard to find good reasons why you should not go. And I can't find any. Right. right. Um, and so it made sense. And the demographic makeup here in the church is about 65, 70% African-American and minority. Uh, and then the rest is, is white. And so, you know, it, it's a unique blend uh, in a large city church um, because the demographic makeup of the city and the suburbs is so racially divided. And so really plugging in and and really trying to um, not necessarily fix the culture of the world that we're in, but really 
meet the need of the lostness of the different communities is the challenge and right. trying to pull that off. God has, God has done some great things. He's blessed us tremendously here wow. uh, in the last five and a half years. Okay. So I'm, I'm very encouraged. I'd say that what makes it special in every way is that we have the Evans who are here, obviously Walter is an elder, Walter and Kim are the, on the um, senior leadership, as well as we have four other elders in the church. And we work really well together. And of course, you know, that's the whole thing, right? You're bringing together two different uh, cultures, people, whatever, but we do a great job of working together for a church that is could easily split because of cultural things. And yet, you know, we, we, we're really close to each other. We really trust each other's hearts. We talk out things. And so it helps to pull that the unity and all, through all of the things we've gone through, especially in these late latter days with all of the uprises and all the different things, tensions. Um, I think we've been able to talk it out, be on the same page and really unite the church in that way. So I think we're really blessed to have the Evans uh, also be a part of the, the church here. Well, that makes me want to ask this next question. What, what have been the challenges that you've faced with the racial and political tension and, and the pandemic? Can you share with us? Yeah, March 16th, which is our anniversary. That was the weekend that everything got shut down for us here in Philadelphia. And the pandemic hit hard. You know, we were scattering, trying to find cables and videos and cameras <laughs> and lighting trying to well, how in the world are we going to do this and and i gotta tell you the church just hands down blew it out mm -hmm. the family group leaders everyone was in small groups the group connections uh were absolutely outstanding we mm -hmm. we came up with some curriculums we've been working through the book of mark it will be a <laughs> year in march and we're still not through it. Verse chapter, by verse. No, just I think this week we're on chapter 10. Uh, it's become a running joke. <laughs> but we we have studied through First and Second Peter uh, uh, on midweeks. We're studying through Exodus right now on our midweeks. So we have really gone after the Bible. But it's been amazing to see uh, people's financial sacrifice has been incredible. Some brothers and sisters got together and said, hey, pandemic hit but we've done well they donated thirty thousand dollars to go to anyone in the church that has been affected by covid separate from our benevolence uh we've hit our missions contributions uh our weekly contribution has just been phenomenal we've seen well over 44 45 conversions it's just been amazing on the covid side we have lost uh a number of people there's been well over 50 members who have lost family members due to COVID. One particular family lost 10 family members in New York City due to COVID. So there's, a, there's an upside of connection and, and growth and things, but then there's also the challenge emotionally of what has happened. So many people have lost loved ones. Um, so it's been pretty challenging, but in the middle of that, the summer we get the George Floyd incident Oh and gosh. obviously for Philadelphia, that triggers a lot of emotions uh, in light of Philly's history and uh, very challenging. And 
And so we've done a number of things to try and combat it. We spent about a month of uh, putting things forward on Sunday about um, social injustice and race and things. And it was interesting. Each week something happened. The text that we had in Mark aptly addressed it, which was just <laughs> outstanding. I couldn't have planned that. I'm not that good. And so we did a lot of that. But then we we came up, which my wife was a part of, the one in C. And maybe you could explain she was a part of the team that put together our so one in Christ program. One in Christ, right. So what we were able to do with the help of, of many is uh, – ask people who wanted to have uh, relationships or conversations with those who were of the opposite race and uh, that they, it was volunteer only, but you could put your name down. And then Kim and I went together and matched people up to just have conversations. And then that, they were given the conversation should go, the things you, you know, you can uh, do with each other. And we did that for, I don't know how many weeks, but it allowed people to have these these conversations, even if they thought they knew the person, but to hear each other's story. And so out of that came a number of things. We also have a task force that got together and they decided we're gonna have more um, diversity training in our ministry. Uh, this is more for the, for the members. And if there's any hurt from the past, that, that was one of the things I was gonna comment on. Uh, hurts from the past can always come up and make you feel, especially now as you hear things that you want to go back there. And it's really with prayer and determination that we are wanting people to, yeah, let's, let's talk about it, but let's realize, <laughs> you know, these things were happening in the first century in the church, all through the church, all through the Bible. And yet it never thought the word of God or the plan of God. So we've got to make sure that we don't just camp out here and let this become let us become a social church, but let's let's make sure we're keeping that where it is. Let's get things, you know, let's work on our relationships, but let's not forget what the overall goal is. And I think Chip has done a great job of keeping us on track with that as well. I mean, that's amazing. Well, and the hard part of all of this is, you know, I think we sometimes get caught up in thinking that the church is here to fix the world's ills. It, it's not. <laughs> we are not going to fix uh, social injustice. We're just not. <laughs> We're not going to fix racism. We're not going to fix prejudice. We're not going to fi fix the biases towards women. In the We're just not. And I think we get caught up into this euphoric thing as if the church is supposed to be this change agent for the whole world. It's not. The church is here as an exit strategy for a lost world. Mm. It, that's it. <laughs> It's an exit strategy. It's, you know, it's the story of Revelation. Look, things are going to get really, really bad. Monsters are going to come out of the sea, but hold on and you'll be with Jesus in heaven. I mean, that's the story of Revelation. I mean, that's really it. But in the midst of this exit strategy, what Jesus does is teaches us how to live in the midst of pain, suffering, injustice, and wrongdoing both in the church and outside the church. Our temptation is to skip over how Jesus expects us to live in the midst of all these challenges and focus on, we can fix all the challenges. No, we can't. This world, God's given up. He says, I'm going to create a new heaven and a, and a new, new earth. earth. Why? Because we've ruined it. We've ruined it. We 
have absolutely don't get me on my soapbox. You know, yeah. I can go oh, on this for going. an hour. This is good. We this is good. have ruined planet Earth, both physically, spiritually, and relationally. We've ruined it. And God is saying, you know what? I got to get you out of here. And Noah's Ark is here in the kingdom. And, <laughs> and we got to get everybody on the boat. And, you know, every different race has got to get on the boat. And in the midst of the suffering, the waves, we got to learn to be faithful and stay in that boat because that's our challenge. Our challenge isn't we're going to fix police brutality or change the social structure. We're not going to do that. We're not. You're telling me that Isaiah, the great prophets, Jeremiah, Elijah, none of those guys could. What makes us think that we could? Jesus didn't. He didn't fix the Roman government. He didn't fix any of it. But he gave us an exit strategy. And he gave us an example on how to live in the midst of unjust treatment, both in the church and outside the church. And we got to figure that out. Now, does that mean that we ignore things we need to change? No, we, we did the one NC. We've got a racial task force. We appointed a woman as an administrator to head up our diversity training so that annually the staff and the church is getting acclimated with diversity and understanding people. Those are all good, but that is not the mission of the church. That, that's, that's not. So, you know, I'm gonna get off my soapbox here because I can go for nine hours on that. Oh, one, that's Rob. Wow. really powerful. Thank you so yes. much for sharing that. And, you know, recent events have, have created awkwardness and uncertainty yeah. in our family of churches that has always prided itself on its diversity. Mm-hmm. And I, I know we, Pam and I have felt it and just, you know, before we didn't even think about it, we're like, Hey, we're a diverse church. We, mm-hmm. we got this down, you know, and then all of a sudden we're looking and talking to each other, just kind of like it's awkward for the first time. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for black and white leaders on how to follow God's path through all this? How do you navigate mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Get on the boat. On the boat. <laughs> <laughs> I had an experience that uh, I was, we were traveling, my sister and I were traveling through Mississippi. We we're on our way to Houston with Mike to uh, help my dad get relocated. And this is during all the racial, uh, you know, George Floyd and all the other things that were going on. And we we're deep in the South. And I was actually born in Mississippi. So we're riding through there. And God would have it, my, something on my car started to rub and I, we called Chip, it's like something's going on with the car. He goes, well, it's probably the gated thing underneath. It may be hanging down. Why don't you pull plastic over? plastic covering plate it. underneath, yeah. yeah. So we pulled over at this gas station. My sister and I are on the ground trying to find out what's going on. We see the thing. And as we're, as we're in this parking lot, we're in Mississippi, two different guys who were white men came over to try and help us fix what was going on. In the meantime, my sister was having all kinds of feelings about the racial things. And I was kept trying to curb the thing. And God just gave us that glimpse of, here we are in the midst of everything. And these two men separate times came over to help us. One guy actually got down on the hot pavement and actually pulled the thing off so we could put it in the car. Meanwhile, other men came and went who were of 
you know, our color and they never even looked our way. And I looked at her and I go, this is the God, this is God for us to see that it's not everybody and we don't have to be so charged about everything. Go on a little bit further. We went to, uh, pulled off to have something to eat and we ended up going to, uh, what's the one honey that everybody goes to? Cracker Barrel. Cracker Barrel. But we were headed to someplace else because my sister is a vegetarian. And I go, well, there's Cracker Barrel. Let's just go there. We go in, we eat, we have this subpar meal. We come out, I'm shopping in there. And all of a sudden I pass by this woman. I feel like her eyes are dead on me. And I go, that is so weird. I didn't look her in the face because we all have our masks on. But I go behind me and I try to look and see who she is. And it's Bethany Jones, who's not Bethany Jones anymore. Bethany Jones is in Mississippi. Now she and her husband live in in uh, Louisiana and they had traveled there to get away from the pending uh, storms that were coming and, and floods that were coming or predicted or hurricanes, ended up at the same restaurant. Bethany was our first intern when we went into the ministry. Here we are in Mississippi. Bethany and her family are, are obviously they're white. My sister gets to see Bethany and I basically hug and jump on each other like what in the world? And all of this, I felt like God was showing my sister the life that I live, that it isn't so one way or the other. And he was showing that her the diversity of our church and the diversity of the world and all of that. And I just reminded that it was during the time when everything was so tense and being down there, you know, feeling things, going through the South. And yet those are the two examples that I had in that visit. And my sister got to be, uh, got to see it. So we went outside, took pictures together, and I still have those of Bethany, your husband, and our daughter, and my sister got to witness all of it. Well, that's, those and are powerful stories. And I, I think, you know, in talking to Will Archer, one of the things he referenced, he said like something like 93% of whites meet in white-only churches. And mm -hmm. 96, something, an equal number, like 96% of blacks meet in black-only churches. And our churches are... I would definitely say much more diverse than that. Um, any way we can just get to keep positive about our family of churches during this time? Any advice from your perspective? You know, it's a challenging subject matter because, you know, it's kind of like when they rebuilt the temple or got close to building it, and you read that story in the Bible. And it says that the young people were rejoicing, but the older were weeping. Mm. They're looking at the exact same thing, but they have two different perspectives at the same moment. Mm -hmm. That is our church. Mm. <laughs> Not that one's rejoicing and the other's weeping, but there's two different perspectives. And the two different perspectives when you, when you think about that instance, when the, when the temple is being built, is that the new generation, their perspective is based on the historical understanding. Mm -hmm. That older generation, their perspective is based on their historical perspective. And I think for us, when we look at our church, it is diverse. It's one of the most diverse churches probably in the United States. I, I, I don't know about outside of the United States, but it probably rivals being the number one most diverse church, I bet. I bet. I'm just guessing. I've right. never studied it. But the difference for us is we're diverse, 
but we don't talk about our histories because when a black man walks into uh, a non-Christian African-American that walks into one of our churches, he immediately calls it a white church. When a white American walks into one of our churches, they immediately go, it's a black church, <laughs> right. which is hilarious, but it's very true. Now, that's not in all churches. I don't know what it's like in Arizona and in different places, but in Philly, that, that's very true. Because in Philly, even at 70% uh, minority, when African-Americans walk in our church, they go, oh, this is a white church. And what they're speaking from and their view is their historical perspective. Their historical perspective says when you worship and when you preach and when you sing, it's very different. This is a white uh, worship type mentality. And when a white American walks in, they go, oh, this is a black church. Look, you know, their historical perspective is on what they see. And it's very different. And, and I think for the church, if we're going to figure this out, which I don't think we will, but I'm just going to say, let's say we figure this out. I, I really don't think we will. But I'm saying it just means that we just got to allow each other to share their historical perspective and be okay with it. Because my historical perspective is never going to change. Someone else's historical perspective is what they've experienced, and it's never going to change. You know, I studied the Bible with a guy once, and he was telling me that he did not need to study the Bible. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, one day I got drunk as I could. And I got in my friend's car and my friend was with me and I floored it. Next thing you know, I hit a tree because I was so drunk and the car was catching on fire. And then this angel came, grabbed me, pulled me out of the car, pulled me over by the tree and stood there with me. And I'm just looking at the angel and the car's on fire. And, and I guess his friend died. And he said, so what I know is God is with me. So I'm all right. So I don't need any Bible. Now, the idea that I'm going to convince him about this angel story didn't happen right. is impossible. It's just impossible. And, 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 and so what I have to do is hear it, accept it, and then say, well, let's figure out a path moving forward. And I think that's what is so important because I think in our churches, there's an enormous amount of guilt with white America because they feel like I can't say sorry enough. I, I don't even know what you're talking about, but I'm supposed to cry and feel and grovel. And then there's the other side of I can't every time I see something, see, that's racial or that's it. And I just go and and nobody and everybody's held hostage. And that's that's not right. We've got to be able to hear each other's history, their perspective. And that's what and, and be OK with it. Wow. Uh, you know, and that's very hard. It is hard um, to do because we all have been traumatized. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been traumatized by my past. And so I have a propensity to respond in certain ways based on my past. No different than the next person. But I can't allow that to hold me hostage as I move forward. Wow. I have to decide at some point. That was my history. That was my experience. But I'm trying to blaze new experiences. And so we got to learn to listen and we got to learn, you know, one guy called me after the George Floyd and he said, bro, I just want to tell you, look, George Floyd's death had nothing to do with race, nothing whatsoever. 
it, it's it's got nothing to do with it. It happened. Hey, you know, there's a lot of white guys that have been killed by police officers. And I just said to him, I said, okay, well, why are you so angry? He said, what? I go, why are you so angry? <laughs> what, what? I mean, if you feel like you know the motive behind the heart of the police officer, I, I don't. I said, but I can tell you this, it doesn't look good. But if you feel like you know the motive, why are you so angry? I said, I'm your brother, Kim. I mean, surely if you and I can't talk and what hope is there? That's right. That's right. And it calmed it down, you know, but those are really hot topics. Yes. This is supposed to be an easy interview. <laughs> right, yeah. That's what I said. Yeah. Just to make us happy. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I can't imagine uh, the pressure you must have felt during the George Floyd unrest. Uh, what do you do to, to let the steam off? I fly my planes. Oh, see? hey, you have that in common. Well, it's a kind of plane. Just... Oh, he and I have talked. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we, you do. They do. We enjoy the same, the same thing. Oh, yeah. that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. I, now, when I say fly my plane to all your listeners, remote control, a toy, a toy plane. Yeah. That's what I fly. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, for me, it, it, you know, I've got to find that peace. You know, my mornings are sacred. Uh, where I wrestle with God. I, I read a lot of Bible because I want to get God's perspective. I, you know, sometimes I can feel like a victim. I can feel like my suffering, my challenge. Okay, we're in a pandemic. We're shut down. I got heat. I got electricity. I got food. I got a wonderful wife, two incredible kids. My office is comfortable. I've got television, internet. I'm connecting with people all over the world through, okay, Okay, Chip, like really? Uh, you know, there are other challenges that God's people have gone through, like being in the desert for 40 years and your sandals don't wear out and you have to find water. I mean, like, and they died when they complained. So it, it just gives me balance. When I look at the scriptures, it gives me a moment to go, hey, okay, you know, Jesus, when I read, you know, the story of Jesus, he was a man of many sorrows, many, not one many and 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 so i'm in good company and 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 it makes me yearn for heaven right uh yearn to be with god right and and at the same time compassion because i want uh some of the most difficult and racist people in the world to make it to heaven Absolutely. i i have no desire for them to fall under the judgment of god i i want them to make it to heaven because twenty thousand years from now None of our opinions about this world will really matter. What what will matter 20,000 years from now is that I'm on the right side of Christ. Wow. And uh, so that, for me, that's what I wrestle with. And then I try and encourage. You know, I was talking to a young man today. You know, he felt really unjustly treated. And uh, just listening and hearing, hey, man, get it out. Yeah, that's terrible. What, you know, how do we handle this, right? You know, we got to be great listeners um, and not fear that listening condones uh, any particular action that we feel is ungodly. Right. Mm -hmm. That's great. For me, it's simply coloring. I love adult coloring books. <laughs> I love puzzles. Yes. <laughs> We're pretty I get simple. lost in this stuff and, or quilting and I'm happy. I, you know, I thought I was really quite the extrovert, but I'm much more, I could be by myself and do those things and be 
really fulfilled. So <laughs> how do I let off steam? I color. That's yeah, awesome. That's great. I, now, you guys have been around a long time now. And so what are, can you share some of the most inspiring stories where you've seen mm. God's footprints? You know, you, you, you saw, Hey, this was God. You, you felt like you saw him working powerfully. Yeah. Yeah. I might put this, the stories I told about the two uh, situations on my way to Houston under that, um, where I, God was working powerfully because I was really battling with my sister's perspective on things. And she, she's a, she calls herself a Christian, but her heart was just constantly black and white, white people. It was all of that the whole time I went down there. So I felt, I felt like for me, that was just, God reaffirming and showing her a different way to look at life. And then I could, you know, without me preaching, God gave us those things. So that's, I would say you put. That's an amazing story. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, my whole life, I think God has been staging for this moment. You know, when I was like three or four years old, I was with the flyers, uh, one of the flyers players on the hockey team. My dad was doing construction. And that ice rink where they were practicing was an ice rink that is literally right behind the home of uh, the Evans, uh, Walter and Kim Evans. And I was two, three years old, and I have a picture of me with that Philadelphia flyer. And, and, you know, God was working on it. And then I went to elementary school. The elementary school I went to was in Chestnut Hill. Well, literally on the corner of that elementary school is where I serve as a region leader in that church. I, I, you couldn't have orchestrated this. You know, I wanted to go play football for the University of Syracuse, but I was showing off in a high school game and busted up my knee and I lost my scholarship to Syracuse, which crushed my heart. I always wanted to go to Syracuse. I cried and I cried. Well, God sent me to UMass where I got reached out to and became a Christian. Well, guess who I married? A little piece of Syracuse. Ruby grew up in Syracuse from nine on. She her exit to her mom's house is the carrier dome. When I first went to go meet her mom, and I had to take the exit to the carrier dome where the where the uh, Syracuse played the Orange. I was like, "This is God. I gotta marry this woman." I gotta you know, marry this woman. When I got here, I mean, I'm from Philadelphia. When I got here, we worked with ODAD, a nonprofit organization that we partner with for recovery. Well, their main location is on the corner right next to where my grandmother used to run an antique store. I mean, it, it it's just crazy. And then my best friend down there at ODAD, who's the president of it, well, he lived on 18th and Cumberland. Well, guess where I was born? 18th and Cumberland. I mean, oh God is gosh. all over this. Wow. When I when When Doug first approached me, about moving to Philadelphia was in February. Well, when we were unpacking and getting our stuff packed to come to Philadelphia, I found my letter of intent where I signed committing to go to New England, Massachusetts. I signed it in February. I mean, so many stories and connections. You know, what's ODAT's colors? Orange and blue. What's Syracuse colors? Orange and blue. I mean, it's just, it's all <laughs> over you know, this life. And I sit there and I go, okay, God has set me aside, you know, for this moment. And it just encourages me to keep going. I think together, what we would probably say that it's more um, recent is our daughter, Camry, who just turned 18. And 
she was adopted from Hope for Children in Atlanta. And uh, she's just turned 18. So this together, God has really done a, a miracle in helping her find her birth family uh, since she turned 18. And this was just Sunday, this last Sunday. And wow. so I think together raising our daughter, how it all came about, the timing of it, all of that, God's hand was in all of it. And it, they're amazing stories in and of themselves, but God has allowed us to raise her and she's 18 now and thriving and doing great. So That's got great. baptized this past summer and during the COVID, uh, during COVID as well. So. Wow. Congratulations. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. What are the, what are the things that you're most excited about right now, either in your ministry or in your, your personal spiritual life? Mm. Probably, um, figuring out, uh, our daughter with a yeah. reconnection with her family. I wouldn't say I'm excited about it. It scares the living daylights out of me and losing my daughter. I love her to death. Um, but I think also the work that we're doing in the city, mm-hmm. you know, we started a program that is mentoring 40 kids in Kensington. Kensington is the hub of heroin addicts in all of the country. It's the, mm-hmm. known as the the most intensely populated heroin addicts in all the country. It has supposedly the best heroin and the cheapest heroin. And if you drive through there during the day, it looks like a zombie apocalypse. People have needles hanging out their arms in broad daylight. They're all over the street sleep, sleeping. Well, the church goes down there once a month. We clean up. We have a mentor program with kids that are down, that are in high school down there. This is a last chance high school. And we've paired up mentors all across the country they come in and help these kids, uh, help them out with homework. They help them out with job training. We have a job training program that goes down there because a lot of these kids will not go to college, but we're getting them, teaching them carpentry skills. We're getting them cer- cer- certificates so that when they come out, they can get jobs plumbing and electrical work and HV. And it's just powerful in every way. And then the work we do with recovery at ODAT is outstanding. And those are the, I mean, we're seeing conversions from there. A longtime brother who's managed there, he uh, was baptized. His wife was baptized. I mean, it's just, God's doing miracle upon miracle with some of this work. But when I think about the challenges our society faces and systemic racism and the effects of some of those things, well, you know, hey, policy is going to be policy, and I don't care who's running. But what I care about is those that have been impacted, we can help serve them. You know, I kind of look at the church as is more like somewhat like the Red Cross. We show up after the disaster. I'm not here to say how this disaster happened or whose fault it is, but I want to help pick up the pieces. And I think that's what we're doing. And I'm really, really encouraged about that. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Great attitude. How about you, Ruby? Um, I, I'm looking at the question again. Yeah, the, the thing that I'm most excited about right now really is my... Um, partnership with the women here on staff. We've got uh, a senior leadership team that we work with the elders and their and their wives, as well as our staff, which we're getting, we have some really great staff uh, that have been here for a while, they're established, and now we have a lot of interns wanting to do ministry. A few of them who are homegrown, they've grown up here in our church who are going into the ministry. And so I'm excited about the training and the to helping other people fulfill the dreams that they have for God. That's fantastic. That's awesome. We are super thankful because uh, someone who came from your church last summer, Felipe Marias, 
and he was an intern in your church. And, uh, you know, we're so happy that he moved here because he's a fantastic young man. I'm so thankful. And I remember talking to you about him and I said, you know, what do you think about this guy? And he's, and you're like, he's a great guy. You know, we'd like for him to stay, but he seems like he wants to move on. And, uh, he ended up dating our daughter three months wow. ago. So we're, that's so, awesome. we're very excited. We're thankful. Yes. We're grateful awesome. that he moved to uh, Tucson. He's a great, great guy. Yeah. Now, Chip, you headlined the 2016 Reach Conference. You're one of the, the main speakers, the evening speakers. You're a powerful speaker. I, you you almost took off during the middle of this podcast right. and, <laughs> and preached a sermon. I, it you, could have been your Sunday you, sermon. You were gaining speed. I thought you were just about to get off the ground there, but... <laughs> You pulled back on the, the velocity, but any advice for those who want to develop their preaching and become a, an inspiring preacher? Yeah, you know, I get that a lot, um, you know, and I wish, uh, so, you know, I feel like it's a gift, to be perfectly honest, and um, and I feel like you've got to decide you know, when it comes to public speaking, what aspect do you have? And, you know, what gift do you have in public speaking? Because I believe there are many different gifts in speaking. And whatever that gift is, you just got to enjoy it mm-hmm. <laughs> and use it uh, to its fullest potential. You know, mine is crazy and zany and passionate. And what I try and tell a lot of people is, speak about what you know. Stop trying to be somebody else. Stop worrying about how you come across. Speak about what you know. And because what you know is what you'll be the most passionate about, the most convincing about, the the ability to make your listeners intimately connect with you because you're telling your story and it's yours. And, you know, no one else can tell your story better than you. And no one else can own your story. And so I think doing that, but then the second thing is you got to listen to yourself a lot. As hard as it is, it is really painful to listen to myself. And now I got to watch myself on that daggone TV. You know, that's even harder. You know, you're like, wow, what's wrong with my eyebrows? What in the world? My, you know, my teeth, I don't like them. Oh, my head is shiny. I mean, so you have to listen to yourself. And, and, and learn. And then, you know, find somebody who has the similar gift you have and is really good at it and imitate them. You know, sometimes with some of the staff here, I go, listen, you, you can't go up there and be like me. It, it's going to be weird. It, it, <laughs> you've got to find somebody. And I say, hey, this guy, he reminds me of you. F- imitate him and then imitate him. For me, I found three speakers that I fell in love with early on. Uh, Kip McKean. And from him, I wanted to be, um, you know, monumental, passionate, with deep convictions. That, that, you know, he was, everything was the greatest it will ever be in the world. Right, right. <laughs> and I was like, that's what I want. Uh, my second one was Rush Yule. Mm-hmm. Rush Yule was kind of so real and he said the obvious things that many people think about. And I said, I want to, I want to be real. I, I don't want to be fake. I want, I want to learn how to be real. And then my last one was Doug Arthur. He takes complex situations, complexities, 
he makes it sim simplistic and he makes you laugh at yourself. Right. And I said, those are the three guys that I want to try and model myself in speaking. And so you find the people that, you know, you want to be like, and then you go th that you can, like, I want to be like Jacoby, but I can't, you know, I, right. they, I don't have his gift set. I just don't, and, you know, but what I try and do is go, Hey, one of the things he does so brilliantly is he has a broad section of biblical text. I can try to catch up with that and get a broad perspective on biblical text. And, and if I can do that and add just a little bit, I'll never be Jack. If I tried to get up there, I would look like a buffoon, <laughs> you know, so I can't, but I'll take some little tidbits from him as I can and, and try and do it. And, um, you know, and honestly, this pandemic has changed because I'm sitting there talking to a camera and no one's in the room. So I'm not getting all hyped up. And so I am doing more teaching, which is refining my ability to speak. And, and it's, it's good. It's a good training. It's been a year. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, yeah. Did you have another question for me? I do have I a do. Bible study that I need oh, to yes. get to. Okay. I will love I, to all right. close this. Okay, Ruby, I do want to know what has helped you keep your marriage, family, and your personal sanity together. I know the women really want to hear about that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay. So if I'm being honest, I'd say it is I have an incredible family that um, allows me with all of the things I'm going through as I'm aging and things are changing. Uh, they work with me. But I do a lot of uh, being vulnerable and uh, going back and apologizing when I when things don't come out the right way or I, I do something. And so there's a, a great thing in our family where we don't let each other sit in this mess too long. We go and we apologize, we get back together and we can go forward. And I think that's what keeps our family, our marriage, my children, our relationships going because you know living so close together, especially during these times, you can really offend each other. <laughs> you can't. Okay. And the other part of that is we have, um, you know, we've had these devos and we talk about yep. our strengths. You yeah. know, I'm the encourager. You know, everything, no matter what happens, I'm like, yeah, yeah, oh, you're awesome. Da, da, da. I'm the encourager. My wife is the one with wisdom. You know, my kids will say, hey, I'm going to go over here. I'm like, yeah, go, go. My wife's like, wait, have you thought this through? <laughs> well, no, I haven't. You know, she's she brings wisdom to the table. That's awesome. You know, she asks questions. Uh, my son, he's the one that is sensitive to each of our emotional needs. My son recognizes pain in in any one of us. And he really holds the the, the banner in that. And then my daughter, she's the protector. She is going to protect the family. She's going to protect the family from anybody, but she's also going to protect the family when we're not getting along. Like she's going to be like, no, we need to sit down and we need to talk. And that recognizing what each person brings, mm -hmm. I think has really helped us. That's amazing. That's awesome. Last question, you guys. And thank you so much for your patience and your time. Yep. Any, any final words for those who want to make this life count and live a no regrets life? I'd say take advantage of the relationships and the 
the different relationships, not just ones like you, but different people from all different stages and ages of life, take advantage of those relationships and build broad friendships. But my most, my most favorite thing to do is to dig deep with God and then reach out for people. Not waiting for someone to come and get you, but you reach out because you know you need those relationships. And I stand on that. And I would say it's pretty simple. Make decisions in view of 20,000 years from now. (laughs) That, that, that's the way you want to make this life count. (laughs) Make decisions in view of 20,000 years from now. That's That's amazing. Get on that boat and stay there. That's yeah. it. Can't That's get off awesome. the boat. That's right. <laughs> That's great advice. Can't get off the boat. I don't care if the captain of the boat is a loony. I'm staying on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your faith, for your wisdom, and your example. It's been great to talk to you. Thank hey, you. thanks for allowing us. Great. Yes, it's yeah. been fun. Thank you for listening to the Rob Skinner Podcast. If you're enjoying this, let me ask you a favor. Please hit the subscribe button and let your friends know about it. My goal is to inspire you to make this life count live a no regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.